following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. I want to begin by just sort of saying, let you in on a secret. For thousands of years, God kept a secret. <laughs> Not really a secret now, of course. He kept a secret in his heart, hidden from the world, from the angels, even from the Old Testament priests and the, and the Old Testament patriarchs, from the prophets, until the time came, until the time was right to reveal it through his son, to the apostles. The secret revealed, and I just want to pause a second, you know, I think all that had already been created. Think of the angels and whoever would have been alive at the time was probably thinking, as we might have been thinking, well, all that God has created has been created, no more created to be happening. They may have been thinking that, and then all of a sudden, God reveals the secret. There was to be a new creation, a new living temple, a new spiritual body through which God was going to work to carry the message of His salvation to the ends of the world, and in whom He was going to create His spiritual likeness. This new creation was to be comprised of both, as we saw last week, Jew and Gentile alike. This new creation is called the what? The church. The church was not foreseen by anything written in the Old Testament. It was a surprise. In Ephesians chapter 3, where we are this morning, Paul calls it a mystery. Something previously unknown which has now been revealed. And so he provides some explanation about this very mystery, which we will see here is very, very important to the Apostle Paul. Let's look at the very first verse of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus, For the sake of you Gentiles. Paul wrote this letter, as we have said, he's a prisoner in Rome, finds himself in the dungeons of a Roman prison, yet gives us a perspective with a sense of purpose when he writes, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner. But notice he doesn't say of Nero or or Rome, he says of Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm a prisoner for a cause. What's the cause? The incredible revelation has seen in chapter 2, which we talked about, that Jews and Gentiles would be brought together in Christ and into becoming a new people group, as we refer to it. Paul is saying, we are all in this thing together. No longer separated, we're together in this. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that he, again, was not a prisoner of Nero. He's not a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ and that the Lord had brought him to that place. He understands that. He recognizes that. He's good with that, okay? And Paul knew that his life 
was in God's hands and that nothing had come into his life that had not first passed through the nail-scarred hands of his Savior. Do we have that kind of confidence this morning? Do we regard our circumstances, whatever they might be, as the proving ground of God's great mercy and his great love? At the risk of sounding callous, I am glad that Paul was in prison. You want to know why? Because our Bible is a whole lot richer and the body of Christ much more complete as a result. While in prison, as most of you know, Paul wrote some letters, right? Letters like Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, ones that we highly value, books we love. And not only that, while, while he was in prison, because Christ had put him there, guards were getting saved, right? Yeah. One by one, those who were chained to the Apostle Paul who had no escape. Can you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul? Just think about that. <laughs> and, and, and it's why he could write in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, the saints in Caesar's palace, in other words, they would spend some time with Paul as a guard, do their duty, be sent back to the palace. And he says, the saints in Caesar's palace, your new brothers in Christ, greet you. Isn't that awesome? Happy will be the one who realizes that wherever he or she is, has been ordained by the Lord to bring about good things if they will just simply have eyes to see, patience to wait, faith to believe. Whenever we complain about our circumstances, folks, or our situations, which I know none of you ever do, you know what we're really doing? We're complaining to our Father. For He... It is who sets our course, God's word tells us. He who it is that determines our days. Paul never lost sight of that very perspective. That is why he could say, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. For it is he who has captivated my heart and brought me to this place for the sake of you Gentiles is what he's saying. Look at for the next couple of verses with me, two and three now. He says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. The words here, surely you have heard, are obviously rhetorical. Paul is assuming that the Ephesians and the believers in the surrounding cities of Ephesus knew about the administration of God's grace that had been given to him on their behalf. So what is this administration of God's grace? It simply means the special stewardship, the trust or commission that Paul had been given and the grace along with the authority that came with that that had also been given in order to fulfill it, to give it, to do it, to make it known, to get it revealed. 
The for you that we read here indicates that God had given Paul this special stewardship. It isn't just about Paul, not just for Paul, but for the sake of others. We need to understand that and see that. Not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I want to remind you that everything God gives you as abilities, as spiritual gifts, and opportunities for ministry are for the sake of others. Amen? After all, if salvation was just for our benefit, only God could simply take us to heaven as soon as we believed and give us the greatest blessing of all. Eternity with Him, beginning immediately. <laughs> However, the reason He keeps us here, and there wouldn't only be one reason, but certainly amongst those reasons that He has kept us here is so that we could become His agents his representatives, his, are displaying him, revealing him, his love, his grace to others. All that we have, I want you to hear this, all that we have, everything that's been given to us needs to be considered by us as a sacred stewardship. Everything that God has brought into our lives, given us in terms of abilities and gifts, whatever you want to call them, need to be considered by us as a sacred, holy stewardship. From Him, just as Jesus gave His life for us, we are called to serve others in His name. It was Matthew Henry who once said, when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. What has God given you? What specifically are you doing with it? What kind of steward are you? And then, like we like to say around here, are you getting yourself out of the way? Verse 4 says, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it is, has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So not only is the mystery important to Paul, but the mystery must be understood by us. This is why he's doing what he's doing in Scripture. The very word mystery refers to something that was previously unknown or hidden, but is now revealed because the timing is right as far as God is concerned. So in other words, this mystery, as we are talking about it, biblically in biblical context, doesn't mean it was something weird, mysterious, or creepy, or spooky, or anything like that. Not in that sense how the world would use the term today. Not at all. 
As you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it will help you and me, I think, immensely. And it will clear out a lot of fog and remove a lot of confusion if you understand that basically God is taking mankind on a march through time in what would be known, what the scholars would refer to as dispensations of time. In other words, if you don't, not real clear what the word dispensation means, just simply means different seasons. Okay, you know how we have seasons, right? Winter, spring, summer, fall. And in life and in God's plan, there are seasons. They're, they're referred to as dispensations, and, and we can find actually eight of them in Scripture. We haven't covered them all yet, but we are in the midst of them, okay? And, and, and God does this. He takes us through these primary dispensations or in ways in which He has related to us, and that's what we're going to be seeing, and I want you to understand here this morning. He does these dispensations as we look back on them, as we try to get some understanding on them because of our thoughts, because of our ideas and our theories that we think we need for life to be happy and good. So what did God do? It's as if he says, okay, human race, have it your way. You're not going to be ready for mine. You think yours is better. I'm going to march you right through these different theories, these different ideas that you think will bring about happiness. And so he began with what we would refer to as the first dispensation. It began with the creation of man, lasted until the fall, and completely obliterates the it's my parents' fault syndrome. It nullifies the argument that the reason we're so messed up is because of who our parents were. Now, that is not me saying, parents, your role is not important. I'm not, of course not, right? It is us realizing that no matter how good a parent is, and that is important, that we example, we be good role models, Christ-like role models, Still, at the bottom line is we have no power over what their choices are going to be. They are made before God. And so it nullifies that. Adam and Eve were perfectly healthy and neither had human parents. <laughs> neither of them could point back to their parents and say, I came from a dysfunctional family. No, they didn't. But what happened? You know what happened, don't you? They chose to rebel against God. And so the dispensation of innocence shows mankind that even if he had a perfect family situation, he's still a sinner who will still rebel against God and wander away. Secondly, the dispensation of conscience. This dispensation lasted approximately 1,650 years from the fall of man to the flood. If we could just follow our own conscience and let everyone do their own thing, we would all live in harmony, some people would say. But look what happened. The world was filled with such violence and sexual deviation, so perverted was the planet 
And according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, only one man on the planet, Mr. Noah, had any interest at all in responding and living for God. Only one. Thirdly, the dispensation of government. This one lasted approximately 425 years from the flood to the Tower of Babel. During this time, God established the first governmental order based upon capital punishment, Exodus chapter 21. Man decided to add to God's order by undertaking what we, we, will, we, what we will refer to as the first governmental building. It's totally apart from God's leading or His wisdom, the Tower of Babel. And Genesis 11 tells us that the venture, as you know, ended in disaster. Fourth, dispensation of promise. It lasted approximately 430 years from Abraham to the Exodus. People say, if I just had a promise, I know my life would be successful. I don't need God. I just need a vision. Well, Abraham received just a promise and vision, didn't he? For God told him that his posterity would number as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heavens, and that he would live in a whole new land. But what happened? His descendants ends up in Egypt in slavery, baking bricks in a blistering hot Egyptian sun. Fifth, the dispensation of the law. The dispensation of the law lasted approximately 1,500 years from the Exodus to the cross of Calvary. There are those who think if man just had some rules and some regulations, he'd be okay. So God gave man the law. There are still those who think that if they could just get their hands on the right book, read the right stuff apart from God's word, imagine that, that everything would be fine. But the law was brilliantly sensible. It was beautifully practical. The only problem was that man cannot keep it, right? Six, the dispensation of grace. It's where we find ourselves today. This is the dispensation in which we live and in which Paul writes. The dispensation of grace brings us to this place where we realize that neither innocence nor conscience, government nor promise, vision nor rules and regulations will save us. The dispensation of grace is God saying to us, I love you. I died for your sin. I rose again. If you confess your need for me with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 tells us that. And then there's the seventh dispensation. It's the dispensation of tribulation. Spoken of in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And as you know, most of you know, it's a seven-year period of unbelievable difficulty. Today, people complain about believing in something that they can't see or hear. God says, okay, you want to see something? <laughs> you want to hear something? Well, here it comes. Angels will fly across the skies. Hailstones will pelt the planet. Seas will turn to blood. Mountains will disappear. 
continents will break apart. The result, the majority of those who are experiencing these cataclysmic changes will, in terms of Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, cry out to the rocks, not the rock of ages, but to the literal rock to fall upon them. And here's the eighth one, dispensation of righteousness. Following the seven-year period of this tribulation, the Lord comes back to earth where he will rule and reign in Jerusalem for 1,000 years. Now, as we know, there will be no more war. No more disease will, will no longer plague the planet. The environment will be absolutely perfect. People say... If I just didn't have, if we just didn't have pollution, if there just wasn't disease or crime, we would be good, we would be happy, we would be content. But what happens at the end of this thousand years, this millennial kingdom, there will be a rebellion against God which totally disproves the theory that a good environment makes good people. For 1,000 years, people will live in a perfect environment, yet even then, some will still rebel against God. An understanding of these dispensations that I've just quickly given you will keep you from being confused by the way, God deals differently with mankind throughout Scripture from cover to cover. For in the unfolding story of His amazing revelation, God shows that mankind has absolutely no idea how to find true, lasting peace or joy or satisfaction apart from Him. Verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past, was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul was well aware of the fact that he had been given the mystery and the privilege of passing it on to others, not because he was so awesome, not because he deserved it. Paul knows, like you and I need to know, strictly because solely because of God's grace. Amen. Only because of His grace. You see, the closer Paul walked with the Lord, the more amazed he was by God that he would use someone like him. And in his own words, in other places in Scripture, the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the least of all saints, right here in Ephesians, the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1, 15. Paul is amazed 
God would use him to minister the unsearchable and boundless riches of his grace. The closer that we get to the Lord, the more we are aware of the sin in our own lives that was previously unnoticeable to us. We must live our lives, church, with a sense of humility. Paul challenges us to see ourselves in a different way, in a way that says, and then we can say it and mean it from the depths of our heart, I'm not an important person, but I am doing and in part of doing an important job. Amen. It's what we're a part of. In his book, The Winner Within, Pat Riley, former coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, talked about the danger of the disease of me. Let me just real brief, briefly, the book was a result of the Lakers in 1980 coming off a world championship and then the following year just sort of internally imploded. The reason? Star players were beginning to complain because other star players were getting more attention than they were. He summed it all up with this statement, which is such a good, great statement. The disease of me leads to the defeat of us. And in our case, the body of Christ. This new people group that Jesus Christ went to Calvary. Not so that we would live mediocre lives. Not that so that we'd be torn apart and not get along with one another. But so that we would be united, bonded by his love and grace, and display that to a world who is already broken and fragmented. They don't need to see a church that is broken and fragmented. Amen? Paul understood that he was born at a specific time to fulfill a specific purpose. This is why the mystery was important to Paul. It is why the mystery needs to be understood by us. It is also why the mystery needs to be very important to us as well. Let's read on. Verses 10 through 12 now. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. Woohoo! The mystery should stir within us, church, a willingness to go the distance with a sense of confidence and wonder, knowing that God's got this. Paul tells us that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are involved with this thing. They're, they're also involved in this great mystery. God is educating, check this out now, educating the angels by means of the church, you and me. Have you ever thought of that? By the rulers and authorities, some of you know, Paul means the angelic beings created by God, both good and evil. 
What then do the angels learn from the church? Paul tells us the manifold wisdom of God. Certainly the angels know about the power of God. They saw it in creation. But the wisdom of God, as seen in his new creation, the church, something new to them. Paul calls it manifold wisdom, and this word carries the idea of variegated or many-colored. In other words, it's referring to the beauty and variety of God's wisdom in His great plan of salvation. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, we saw where we are declared His masterpiece. We're a canvas. Amen. Belonging to God, displaying His masterpiece, His handiwork. The angels in heaven must be saying, You mean these renegade people can come marching into your throne room anytime they want? Cast their cares upon you and get help from you? The answer is a resounding yes. Because of what Jesus did for us at Calvary's cross. The demons, on the other hand, could say, isn't it amazing? Those on our side serve us only when there's something in it for them. <laughs> Money, power, fame, but God's people serve him simply because they love him. God's people serve him even when there's suffering and hardship involved. How does he do it? Paul's answer, it's the manifold wisdom of God that brings us about, and I like the way the New Living Translation puts verse 10. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display His wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. But there is another facet here that we don't want to miss. What are the evil angels learning from the body of Christ? From God's mystery? Well, I'll tell you one thing for sure. They're learning that their leader, the evil one, he's not real smart. <laughs> he lacks wisdom. Oh, sure, he knows the Bible. And he understood from the Old Testament scripture that the Savior would come, when he would come, and how he would come, and where he would come. The evil one also understood why he would come as far as redemption is concerned. But nowhere in the Old Testament would he find any prophecies concerning the church. The mystery of Jews and Gentiles united together in one body. Oh, he knew that Jews would rebel against God again and again and again. He knew that Jews and Gentiles would never get along, but he never saw this. Yeah. I love that. He never saw both Jews and Gentiles believing in the Messiah and being united together into one new people group, forming the body of Christ, the church, seated with Christ in heavenly places and completely victorious yeah. over him. Woo! 
This came to me. I wrote this. I love this. Not just because I'm saying it, okay? <laughs> I think you're going to like it too. God hit him with a right hook knockout punch he never saw coming. <laughs> Folks, God is using us to show all of heaven that love has more power than hate, that grace has more power than sin. Paul says that God's wisdom has been revealed in the church because God's plan has been fulfilled in the Messiah. This is the church triumphant. Amen. May it be alive and well here in this place, in our lives today and forevermore. And we will then understand when we are the church triumphant what Paul says in verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul's situation in prison could easily discourage young believers. Can you see that? To turn away from God. Paul urges the Ephesians not to let that happen. His suffering was no reason for sadness. In fact, it's the opposite. It is actually a reason, a cause for rejoicing. It was helping accomplish God's plan. Paul's suffering meant spiritual gain for the Ephesian believers, meaning they were being led to know Christ more deeply, more personally, and experiencing salvation much more fully than they ever would have otherwise, all because of Paul's experience in prison and what God was doing with him there that was being passed on, not just to those in that day, but to us even in this moment, in this place. Yes, God had a secret, but God doesn't want it to be a secret any longer. Amen, church? If you understood your amazing position in Christ, then please live up to it and share the blessing with others. This secret was important to Paul, to the Gentiles, and to the angels, and it ought to be important to you and me today. If ever, <laughs> if ever there was a time or a topic to be a blabbermouth about, <laughs> then certainly it is this. God has saved us, and he has called us to make him known. Can we do that? Yeah? Let's do that. Father, we come before you this morning and just so thankful once again for all that you do and are doing. God, we've been reminded once again through your word of all that we have been given because of your work at Calvary. I, my prayer, Lord, is that we would take seriously these sayings that Paul has written to us with regards to the mystery, 
which is the church came to us through Christ. We are a part of this. We've been given a mission. Just as you came, Lord Jesus, with a mission, so now we have a mission. May we, may we live up to it. May we be faithful. May we be found faithful as you are faithful in displaying your love and your grace and your mercy. No longer broken and fragmented, but united loving each other with the very same love that God has loved us with. This is what we have in you, Lord Jesus. May we live it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.